Yeah, what we need to know about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Well, two things. 30 minutes is not enough time to learn what we need to learn about this conflict. The second thing is, I really don't know enough about the conflict to even talk to you about the conflict. But that uh, not understanding something and not knowing something has never kept me quiet before. So here we go. There's a funny scene, I think it's a funny scene, in the office where uh, the company has a surplus. But Michael just doesn't really understand what that surplus means. And so he asked Oscar, why don't you explain this to me like I'm an eight-year-old? So Oscar explains it to him, and then Michael says, well, why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? <laughs> Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. And uh, I don't know if I understand it or not. I don't know if anybody truly does. So my conclusion is that while I don't fully understand it, my limited understanding is that I really do think the conflict, as I look at history and as I look at Scripture, is really all about this piece of real estate. It's about the land. It was originally the land of, of Canaan. It became known as the land of Palestine. You might know the word Palestine. Its root word is the Philistine. If you are uh, graduates of Sunday school and evangelical churches, you'll remember Goliath. Well, he was a Philistine. And uh, that name Philistine became known as the land of Palestine. But it's about the land. Land is powerful, not because of geography, but because of identity. Land means something to us. Land tells us who we are, what our roots are many times. And when that place, that land, is tied to a religion, there is a double whammy. It carries a double force of power. And as I understand it, both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people lay claim to that piece of land. Now, if you grew up in an evangelical church, as did I, you very likely will remember your Sunday school teacher teaching you to sing, Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. Now, what your Sunday school teacher most likely did not do was to tell you the rest of the story. The ram's horn sounded. This is when Israel, led by Joshua, was outside of uh, Jericho in the land of Canaan. The ram's horn sounded, and when the army heard the signal, they gave a loud battle cry. The wall collapsed, and the warriors charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. They annihilated with the sword everything that breathed in the city, including men and women, young and old, as well as cattle, sheep, and donkeys. We didn't have a verse about that in Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. We would... In Sunday school, when I was a preschooler, uh, we would actually march around the Sunday school room as if we were marching around the walls of Jericho, not knowing that in the story, as it's recorded in the book of Joshua, all the human beings, no matter their age, were totally annihilated. Hmm. It's not a really good children's story, is it? This event recorded in Joshua, was all about taking the land. 
and killing the inhabitants of the land so this group of people could have it and live on it. And that had been the plan all along. This plan of the land and taking the land of Canaan is found all the way back in the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. But we're going to fast forward from that story about 13, 1400 years to the time of Moses and who died and then Joshua took over as the children of Israel were leaving Egypt through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. But here in Deuteronomy, it's recorded, when the Lord your God brings you to the land that you are going to occupy and forces out many nations before you. So did you catch the language? They're going to go to the land and they're going to force people out. They're going to force out the people who are already living there. And those are the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, which later came to be known as an, uh, one general umbrella term for all of the ites that live there, the uh, Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And he delivers them over to you and you attack them. You must utterly annihilate them and make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. They're being called and told and ordered to go into the land and take the land from its already present inhabitants. Deuteronomy 20, we also read, However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. And then we go to backwards in a book to Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the Rift Valley plains of Moab along the Jordan, across from Jericho, and he said, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their carved images, all their molten images, and demolish their high places. You must dispossess the inhabitants of the land and live in it, for I have given you the land to possess. So what are you all hearing from those passages? It doesn't have to be a rhetorical question. <laughs> sounds a little bit like genocide. If not a little bit, it sounds like it, doesn't it? So there was... And God's the one that's telling them to do it. I'm glad you mentioned that, John, because I want to ask a follow-up question. Do you think God actually told them to do this. There are some scholars, and one of these scholars was one of my professors at a Southern Baptist seminary, no, no doubt, who did not believe that God actually told them to do this. But they thought that's what God told them to do. And I talk to people every once in a while who kind of had that same idea that, well, God told me to do that. And I said, God didn't tell you to do that. And I probably thought the same thing, too. That's something for us possibly to consider. Well, since these days that this is recorded, the land of Canaan has changed hands. Uh, the Babylonians conquered the land and the Persians conquered the land. We read about those in Kings and Chronicles and the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and uh, then Micah and some of the 
minor prophets. They're called minor prophets because their books are shorter than the major prophets. And then uh, in Jesus' day, we read about the Roman occupation of that land. And the land of Canaan came under Muslim control in 637 CE. And, uh, and then during the Crusades, Christian armies, well, they called themselves Christian armies. They were armies that called themselves Christians, but they didn't do anything. It was very much like Jesus. But the crusade, crusaders went in and they killed not just the Muslims who were there in the promised land, the land of Canaan, but they killed Jewish people as well. And then from 1517 to 1917, 400 years, the land was under the control of the Ottoman Empire, which was a Muslim. Uh, their religion was one of Islam. And then when World War I ended in 1918, the British took control of Palestine. Now, before your eyes glaze over like you're in an old-fashioned history class, uh, let's get back to what happened in 1948. Well, in 1947, the United Nations had a plan. Let's divide the land. We'll give part of the land to the Jewish people, part of the land to the Palestinian people. Sounded like a pretty good idea. The Jewish leaders voted for it. The Arab leaders voted against it because the Arab leaders thought that it was not fair in the distribution. There were more Arab people than Jewish people, but in the plan, the Jewish people got more land than the Arabs. So they said, we're not going to buy that deal. And so the deal fell through. 1948, with the help of the United Nations, Israel declared itself an independent state. And that's a big thing. The Arabs who were in the land called this declaration a Nakba, which is Aramaic for catastrophe. Now, eight years before 1940, there was a guy named Yosef Weitz, who was the director of the Jewish National Land Fund. He confirmed that this whole issue is over real estate when he declared that there was not enough room in the land for both Jews and Arabs. This is what Yosef said. If the Arabs leave the country, it will be broad and wide open for us. If the Arabs stay, the country will remain narrow and miserable. The only solution is Israel without Arabs. There is no room for compromise on this point. There's a historian uh, by the name of, uh, or rather the, the prime minister of, of Israel at the time of 1948 when Israel became an independent state was David Ben-Gurion. And he said this in 1948, we will expel the Arabs and take their place. Sounds a lot like Joshua, doesn't it? numbers in Deuteronomy. And that is exactly what happened in 1948. Israeli paramilitary came in and displaced hundreds of thousands of Arabs from their homes. Now, I want you to imagine if someone, a paramilitary organization, came into Springfield and Rogersville and Ozark and Nixa, southwest Missouri, the Ozarks, and displaced us out of our homes, ran us out of our own homes, off of our land. How do you feel about that? I'd be a little bit bitter, a little bit upset. I'd defend myself.
trying to protect my land. Well, that's exactly what happened. When I was in high school, I'm so lucky to be in the family that I was in. My mother and dad gave me so many good books to read in high school. One of my favorite books was a book by the guy who went by the name of Brother Andrew. He wrote a book called God's Smuggler. What Brother Andrew did was to smuggle Bibles behind all of us old people know the Iron Curtain. It was that metaphorical curtain between uh, free Europe and, and communist Europe. And uh, he would smuggle Bibles, and I love the story of the adventure of, of, of uh, Brother Andrew. And I loved his story most of all because he smuggled those Bibles in a blue VW Beetle. <laughs> so the first car I bought in 1974 was a blue VW Beetle. And uh, I just love the story. He wrote later on, he was very involved in the Middle East world as well. And he wrote a book later on called Light Force. And he talks about this, about a village in uh, Deir Hassan in which 250 men, women, and children were massacred. This is what Brother Andrew says about that. A few men were left alive in this village and driven around to other villages to tell the story. And then those men were killed too. The result was a panic, and that's why so many Palestinians fled. Entire villages were emptied, which is exactly what the Israelis wanted. They just took over people's homes. Dr. Benny Morris is a history professor at Ben-Gurion University, and he states in very plain terms what happened in 1948. He says the Zionists, now that word Zionist, is a word that means somebody who is uh, a proponent of the nation of Israel. And in a sense, I'm a Zionist because I'm, I'm glad that Israel has a nation. I wish Israel would have had a nation uh, during the days of Nazi Germany, and there wouldn't have probably been the Holocaust. There would have been a homeland for the Jewish people. But he talks about 1948, the Zionist murders, terrorism, and ethnic cleansing that drove 600 to 750,000 Palestinians from their homes in 1948. He goes on and he condemns the rape that occurred, uh, perpetrated against the Palestinian women. He condemns the massacre, but he's perfectly fine with dispossessing the land, of driving the people out of their homes. In fact, he says this, there are circumstances in history that justify ethnic cleansing. A Jewish state would not have come into existence without the uprooting of 700,000 Palestinians. Now then, this, is hurt. this hurts, this part here, because he brings it back to our own backyard. The great American democracy could not have been created, for example, without the annihilation of the Indians. You know, there are cases in which the overall final good justifies harsh and cruel acts that are committed in the course of history. And that kind of puts it on us, too, as Americans. Now, if there was a mistake in 1948, according to Dr. Morris, it was that the paramilitary of the Israelis did not complete the job. Dr. Morris is speaking of the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, when he says that the prime minister got cold feet and did not complete the job of cleansing the land of Palestinian people. He should have done a complete job. So today we have the nation of Palestine, or of Israel, 
and we have the occupied territories of Palestine. And since those days in 1948, there's been a human cost. It's astronomical. Total deaths from 2008 to 2020, you'll see in the little box on the side there, right over there, 5,590 deaths of the Palestinians and 251 deaths in the Israelis. And you'll see here the injuries and, and the deaths there. Since October 7 of this year, uh, I, I put this teaching together on Thursday, and at that time it was 5,000 Palestinians and 1,400 Israelis had been killed since October 7. Now then I heard on the news this morning that that's over 7,000 Palestinians have been killed since October the 7. So this conflict between the two groups of people have been going on. It's been going on for 3,500 years. My question is, will it ever end? And I really do think it's all about land. Who has the right to live on the land? So I've got some summary thoughts. And these are just my thoughts. And maybe we can talk about those at the end. My first thought is this. The nation of Israel and the Jewish people are not the same thing. One is a political state. And the other is a religion and an ethnicity that is filled with people who are beautiful and kind and who are wanting and working for peace in this world. So I can criticize the nation of Israel, the government of Israel, and not be anti-Semite. I can be pro-Jews and critical of the nation of Israel, just like I can criticize the, the government of the United States and be very pro-American. In fact, if I don't criticize the government, when I see the government doing something that I don't think looks like Jesus, then I'm not a very good American and definitely not a very good follower of Christ. So to me, there's a big difference between the people who are Jewish people and the government of Israel. Now, I grew up in a religious and a home environment that was all in for Israel no questions asked for the nation of Israel. And that view was based upon a certain interpretation of Scripture. The view says at least two things of Scripture. First of all, it says that Israel is, as a nation, not just as individual people, but Israel as a nation is special to God. Uh, have you ever heard of John Hagee? He's a pastor in San Antonio. And he's what is called a prosperity pastor. And that's not a derogatory term. It just is what it is. I'm a, I'm a progressive pastor. I'm a heretic. And I just, I'll take that. That's, it's not a derogatory word. It's just who I am. And John Hagee is a prosperity pastor. And that is a theology that says, if you do certain things that are right according to God, that are good according to God, then God will bless you with prosperity, mostly health and wealth. And one of the good things, of course, that you're supposed to do to be blessed is to give money to his church. So if I would become a prosperity gospel preacher, maybe we'd have bigger offerings. I don't know. But anyway, this is what John Hagee said. God's word is very clear. Remember, whenever a preacher says God's word is very clear, just turn it off. 
This is really not very clear. But John says it is. There will be grave consequences for the nation or nations that attempt to divide up the land of Israel. God's love for Israel is expressed in the words of Zechariah. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so John Hagee's view was this. If, you real, if a nation really wants to be prosperous, if the United States really wants to be prosperous, then the United States better protect and defend. No questions asked. The nation of Israel. Now, there's John Hagee on the prosperity gospel side, and there's uh, Jerry Falwell on the other side. Jerry Falwell, for those who are younger than uh, Denise and me, started the moral majority, and he too loves the nation of Israel, and he too called the United States to support the nation of Israel, not so the United States would be blessed, but so the United States won't be cursed. Uh, Jerry Falwell is an independent Baptist, and he likes to talk about hellfire and brimstone. And uh, so he says, if the United States doesn't support Israel, the United States is going to be cursed by God. And so they both have the same commitment to the nation of Israel, one on the positive, one on the negative. And the, ba- the go-to verse for this is Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham. It's a powerful passage. I love it. And there's this verse, I will bless those who bless you. Speaking of Abraham, his descendants, the nation of Israel. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that verse became the basis for unqualified support for the nation of Israel. If we want good things to happen, we're going to support the nation of Israel. If we don't, bad things will happen. Just uh, recently, uh, with this last conflict, Robert Jeffries, who is the uh, pastor of First Baptist uh, Church in Dallas, such a used to be such a respect. I used to have such respect for that church when I was in the Southern Baptist world. But uh, he said this: Jerusalem is the touchstone of prophecy. But most importantly, God gave Jerusalem and the rest of the Holy Land to the Jewish people. So the interpretation of Scripture that causes evangelicals to support the nation of Israel was, number one, they interpreted Scripture to mean that God loves the nation of Israel more than any other nation, and that, number two, the nation of Israel and what happens to the nation of Israel determines the end, is linked to the end-time prophecy. So whatever happens in Israel is connected to the return the understanding, anyway, of the return of Christ. I grew up evangelical. So did you, many of you. The last survey shows that 80% of evangelicals believe that Israel became a nation in 1948, and that happened, when that happened, that was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, 50% of evangelicals today support the nation of Israel because they believe it's important in fulfilling end-time prophecies. Now, personally, as a, an ex-evangelical, and Denise and I were in the evangelical world until, well, I was pastor of evangelical churches until uh, 2012, but I kind of in my heart quit being an evangelical uh, around uh, 2008. But uh, 
My observation in the evangelical world is this, and I speak to it more from my experience personally and from what my friends and other people thought as well. That that evangelical view of Israel has blinded us and it blinded me to the humanity of the Palestinian people, to their needs and to their experiences. A lot of people seem to skimp when it comes to compassion for the Palestinians in the world in which we live. We find it very easy to be compassionate for the Israelis, and we especially need to be compassionate for those who have suffered so horribly in that abhorrent attack. But I ask you to do this today. Will you be equally compassionate for those innocent Palestinians? 7,000 Palestinians have been killed. 60% I read was women and children. Do we have the same compassion just for people, regardless of who they are? I read one politician statement, the senator, uh, U.S. senator, who made this comment, we are in a religious war, and he told Netanyahu, level the place. Level Gaza, level the West Bank. Evangelical. Also, from my experience as an evangelical, War in Israel was always welcomed. We were excited about a possible war in Israel because that meant that we were just one step closer to the return of Jesus. And what happened in my world, and I don't know if that's true with evangelicals today, but when I was there, we focused more on Israel being in war and the future and the possibility of that leading to the return of Christ than trying to work for peace today. We were so focused on the return of Christ tomorrow and what that war would do to usher that return in that we didn't try very hard to create peace today because we won't want peace there today. As evangelicals, we wanted a war there so that that would lead to, because that's how we understood end-time prophecy, that would lead to the return of Christ. All right. Another thing that I observe here. The people of Israel and the people of Palestine deserve lives free from fear, from oppression and threats. Both sides have a right to their land. Until every Palestinian and Israeli, life is seen as equally precious and treated with mutual love and respect, there will not be peace in the land. I stand for solutions that are pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-justice, and pro-peace. I see basically two facts. These are just my facts. First fact is the daily oppression of the Palestinians live under. I see that as a fact. Every day, Palestinians live under oppression. But the second fact is, I see that Israelis daily live under the threat of extinction. That there are nations that want them extinct. 
And those are two facts that we must address. The people of Israel and all Jewish people, and I hate it that anti-Semitism has grown in the United States, but the people of Israel and all Jewish people have a right to live outside without fear that somebody is wanting them gone. The people of Palestine have a right to live free of oppression. You know, the people who are being bombed in Gaza today are the children, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who were alive in 1948 who were displaced from their homes. And these children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren today who are experiencing this displacement of their homes, they're saying, is it ever going to end? Are we just going to continually be oppressed and driven from our houses and from our land? You know, fundamentally, getting rid of Hamas is not going to solve the problem. As long as people are oppressed, the oppressed will resist oppression. And the armies of Israel, the nation of Israel, can eliminate every member of the Hamas organization. But as long as there's oppression, other people will rise up and fight it in ways that are deplorable and horrific. The only solution I see is to quit being oppressive. That's just not for the Israeli government. That's for all people across the planet. David Nasser is a Christian, originally from Iran. He says that when we follow the Jesus we talk about, this crisis will be over. So are we willing to follow this enemy-loving, peace-proclaiming, prisoner-freeing Jesus? This lady's name is Yaakoved. With all the grief, the justifiable grief that Israelis are going through now and the anger that they're ex- experiencing and so many crying out for vengeance, this 85-year-old Jewish woman is showing a different attitude. She was one of the hostages that was taken October 7. She was released last Monday, October the 23rd. She said it was hell. She was beaten with sticks. But then upon her release last Monday, she shook the hand of one of her captors, of one of the militants. And when she shook her, his hand, she said one word to him, Shalom, which is that beautiful Hebrew word that is so full, so rich, and it means may all that is good be yours. So the captor who's releasing her, who possibly created hell for her when there was the release, her response to him was, may all that is good in the world be poured upon you. Shalom. And then she said this, they were really very nice people. They took care of us. They cleaned our toilets even. 
They made sure we were fed. And then she said, this is so funny to me. There were a lot of women and, and these men from Hamas, they understood the need for feminine hygiene. And they took very good care of us. Yaakov Bed has been a lifetime peace activist. Her name is a biblical name. The mother of Moses was, we always pronounce it in English, Jacobed, but it's Yaakoved. The name Yaakoved, the mother of Moses, is made up of two Hebrew words, one Yahweh and one Abad, which means God, glory. Moses' mom, Jochebed, was the very first person in Scripture, in Hebrew Scripture, that has a name that is a part of the name, that has in it a part of the name of God. That's so important to me that this lady in 2023 has that name, a name that reflects a very part of God. Because there's this radical Jew by the name of Jesus, and we must never forget that Jesus was a Jew. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew. And this radical Jew made this statement that is so powerful for us. As Jochebed reflected the name of God in her name and the spirit of God in her actions, this radical Jew named Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Uh, may Yaakov's tribe increase. May we all follow her and that radical Jew named Jesus. <laughs>